Acts 26 is our passage this morning. We've read it uh, in its entirety. We're going to refer to it throughout our time together, so you'd like to have your Bible open as we proceed this morning. Last week, Jake Graves preached, and he did a great job. He talked about Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, and in that sermon, he talked about the process of discipleship. What does discipleship look like? How does it play out? How does the faith get passed down? How are disciples made? And when we left off last week, Paul was traveling the world, and he was making disciples, and those disciples were doing what disciples do. They were, in turn, making other disciples. As we pick up the story this morning, Paul is not traveling anywhere. Paul is a Roman prisoner. And so before we talk about this passage, I just want to try to connect these dots a little bit. We're moving through the New Testament very quickly. You're reading all of it during the week, and then we're stopping on Sundays and Wednesdays to punctuate it with different lessons. So let's connect the dots. How did Paul, world-traveling missionary, end up a prisoner of Rome? That story actually begins all the way back in Acts chapter 9, a passage that Corey preached on several weeks ago. Acts 9, 1-22 tells a story, the initial story of Saul's conversion. He had not yet changed his name to Paul. He was still going by Saul, and he is saved. We're reading about that again this morning for the third time in the book of Acts, but Acts 9 is the first time you come across that story. And the one verse that I want to draw your attention to from Acts 9 is verse 15 that says this, The Lord said to Ananias, you remember Paul was blind after this encounter with Jesus and God sent Ananias to speak to Paul or to Saul. The Lord said to Ananias, go for he, Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now it would have been expected that Saul would go speak to the children of Israel, to Jewish people. He was a Jew. It would have been mildly surprising that he would be sent to the Gentiles, although not entirely surprising. What I think probably caught Paul's attention when Ananias showed up and said, Saul, you are God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, is that word, kings. I don't know what went through Saul's mind when he heard it, but I know my own heart, and I know a lot of preachers, and do you know what I think Saul thought? I think he thought, kings? I'm going to be a celebrity pastor. I'm going to be YouTube famous. I'm going to pastor a megachurch. I'm going to be like Billy Graham, pastor to the presidents. Everybody's going to know me. I think there was something in Paul when he heard that message from God, from Ananias, that he thought, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be a celebrity. I'm going to be a big deal. By the time you get to our passage, he's not famous, he's infamous. How do we get there? Well, in Acts 21, 27 to 36, you read about Paul being arrested in Jerusalem. He had finished a mission trip. He had some Gentile friends with him in Jerusalem, and Paul's enemies used that as an opportunity to falsely, emphasis on falsely, falsely accuse Paul 
of bringing these Gentiles into a part of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed to go. And so Paul was arrested. And as you read Acts 23, 24, and 25, it's the story of Paul defending himself. First, he has to defend himself in Jerusalem as he stands before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Then he gets sent off to Felix, the Roman governor, and then Felix is eventually replaced by Festus, and he has to defend himself before Festus. And over and over and over again, Paul is essentially saying, I have done nothing wrong. I have not broken any laws. I don't deserve death. I don't deserve to be in prison. And he's defending himself over and over and over again. Now, for me to read that statement to you takes about eight seconds. And you know, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, to read Acts 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. It doesn't take you that long. It takes you a couple of minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, depending on how fast you read. Let's just put a time stamp on that period. From the time Paul was arrested in Jerusalem to the time we pick up the story this morning in Acts 26, two years have passed where Paul is incarcerated because he was falsely accused of bringing Gentiles in to the temple. When you read that, when I read that, my mind goes back to the book of Genesis to a man named Joseph who was falsely accused incarcerated, and after some period of time thought he had a friend and a high place who was going to get him out, but his friend forgot him, and the text simply says, you read it in just a matter of moments, two years passed. Two whole years. Two years is a long time. Two years is a long time for someone like Paul to sit still. He's been put in the timeout chair. And all he wants to do is travel around the Roman Empire, plant churches, tell people about Jesus, make disciples, and then move on to the next place. Paul's kind of like Chris Harrington. When Chris Harrington goes on a mission trip to Kenya, he gets on the plane to come back, and he's already planning the next trip. He doesn't sit still. This trip's not even done yet. We're not even home. Let's talk about the next one. That was Paul. Always on the move. Always on the go. And for two years, he's stuck in Roman legal limbo, doing nothing but defending himself against false accusations. So we pick up in Acts 26. And the Roman governor at this time is a guy named uh, Festus. And Festus hosts guests. And the guest that he hosts is Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. They come to town And apparently at this point in time, there's no Netflix or there's no Top Gun in the movie theater to say, hey, let me entertain you. Let me take you to to do something fun. Let's go to Synergy. What are we going to do? I'm hosting guests. What Festus says is, hey, Agrippa, Bernice, you guys are kind of Jewish. I have a Jewish prisoner, and it's an interesting case. Maybe you'd like to hear it. No Netflix, no Top Gun. They say, we would love to hear this case. And so the whole thing gets set up in Acts 26 is the story of Paul defending himself before Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. So that brings us to the big idea of this passage. Very simple. Paul's life was radically changed when he met Jesus Christ. His life was radically changed when he met Jesus Christ. 
if you are reading through the New Testament and you've made it this far and you're on track, you've made it through the book of Acts, and you have noticed that the story of Paul's conversion is repeated three times. You read about it in Acts 9, and then you get to chapter 22, and it's told again. And then you get to our passage, Acts 26, and it's told again. Repetition is a key way that Bible authors get our attention. And when Luke writes this story, and he tells the same part of the story three times, what Luke is saying is, you need to pay attention to this. You need to pay attention to all of it. But you really need to pay attention and understand what happened in the life of Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, who we remember as Paul, the missionary, the Christian. So let's talk about Paul's speech before Agrippa. It has three parts, very, very simple. This is Paul's story. First, Paul described his life before meeting Jesus. That's Acts 26, 4 to 11 pretty simple. Paul says, I'm a Jew, and I was a Pharisee. That was no small thing. That was a major point on your resume to say, I had attained to the title and the position of Pharisee. That was a big deal. It's not just that he was Jewish. It's not just that he was religious. It's that he was a Pharisee. He was an educated, learned, serious man when it came to matters of faith. And he opposed Jesus, and he opposed the Christians. And he says right here, as he's defending himself, he says, you know what? There was a time in my life where I opposed the name of Jesus, and I had Christians arrested. And when we took a vote on what to do with those Christians, I voted to kill them, and they were killed. He says in this passage, he was opposing Christianity with raging fury. He wasn't just a little bit opposed to it. Corey made the point when he preached through Acts 9 that Saul was breathing out threats and murder. Here he says, I opposed the message of Jesus with raging fury. That's the first part of his story. Here's the second part. Paul described how he met Jesus. How he met Jesus. This is verse 12 to 18. Paul says, I was traveling to Damascus. I was going to arrest Christians. I was going to force them into a corner where they had no option but to blaspheme Jesus if they wanted to live. And there was a light. Brighter than the sun. And there was a voice and it knocked me from my horse. And I asked who it was. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus appeared to Paul. And he told him on that road to Damascus, take note of this, Jesus did not invite Paul to be a missionary, but he said to Paul, I am here to appoint you and to send you. He wasn't asking if Paul wanted to sign up. He was just telling Paul, you're going. Maybe Chris should start mission trip sign-ups like that. He'll meet you in the hallway. You're going. You're going. You're going. We'll get a spotlight. We'll get a megaphone. It'll be bright, loud. That's what happened to Paul. 
Jesus showed up and he said, you're going. You used to be on that team, now you're on my team, and I'm sending you. You're going out to be a witness about the things that you've seen. That's how he met Jesus. Third part of his story, life after meeting Jesus. He says, very simply, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. I started telling everybody, everywhere, every nationality, the good news about Jesus Christ, and I called people to turn from their sins, to repent, and to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before, how he met Jesus, after meeting Jesus. It reminds me of the story of John Newton. A couple months ago, maybe it was a year ago or more, I don't remember exactly, but we talked about John Newton on a Sunday morning. John Newton was a bad guy. Lived in England. He was rotten. He was vile. He was the worst of the worst. He's not the kind of guy you want your daughter to bring home from college. He was a really bad man. But then he met Jesus, and his life changed radically, drastically. He fought for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. He wrote hymns. He preached sermons. He became a a very, very serious, fervent Christian. And Newton looked back on his life years later, and he was reflecting on his life. And this is what Newton said. He said, I'm not what I ought to be, not what I want to be, not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, I shared that with you. I try not to repeat quotes and stories and illustrations I shared that with you months ago, and it struck me how many of you went out of your way in conversation to say that you appreciated this quote, and that it helped you think about your own story. It helped you think about your own life to say, look, I haven't arrived. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where God wants me to be. I'm a work in progress. I'm still moving closer to Jesus Christ, but God has done something real in my life. And I'm not who I used to be. I'm a different person. By God's grace, I am what I am. Sometimes people quote Newton, that last part of the quote, to say, I am what I am. This is what you get. Take it or leave it. Sorry. That's what it is. That's not Newton's point. Newton's point is, I used to be a bad guy. And I'm not exactly a great guy now, but I've changed. And the difference in his story was meeting Jesus Christ. That's Paul's story. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's your story. If you are a Christian, your story has three parts. Life before Jesus, meeting Jesus, and life after Jesus. That is the story of every Christian. Now, you look around the room. You think about our backgrounds and our experiences, and you say, there's a lot of diversity in our stories, and there is a lot of diversity in our stories. Some of you think about this little three-part schema, and you say, you know what? I lived most of my life before I met Jesus. Just realistically, you think about your age and when you met Jesus and when you became a Christian, and you do the math, and you say, you know what? Most of my life was lived in that first section, but I have met Jesus. And now I'm in this third section of the story, life after Jesus. Others of you say, you know what? I don't really remember that top part of my story. I grew up in church. I became a Christian at a young age. And 
I know there was a time back there where I wasn't a believer, but I just I don't remember that. It was so long ago, and most of my life has been lived as a follower of Jesus. So there's variation there. Some of you would say, you know what? I look back on that before part, and man, I made a mess of things. I just made a mess. It was terrible. Finances, terrible. Relationships, terrible. Family, terrible. Work, terrible. My heart, terrible. It was just a train wreck. Everyone knew it. Others of you look back on that before section and you say, you know what? Life was pretty good. In spite of myself, God was kind to me and had a good job and had a good family and had a nice life and didn't have any run-ins with the law and wasn't strung out on drugs and life was was pretty good. So there's variation in what happens before we meet Jesus. Some of the variation may be that you would say, before I met Jesus, I did not believe there was a God. I was an atheist or I was an agnostic. And some of you would just honestly say, I don't remember any time in my life where I did not believe there was a God. I cannot remember a time where I ever grew up thinking that there was no God out there. Some of you look at the before and the after, and you say, you know what? It's pretty stark, pretty dramatic, kind of like Paul went from killing Christians to preaching about Jesus. That's pretty dramatic. And you say, that, that was my story. I know some of you, and I know that that's your story. It's an amazing thing. Some of you look at the difference, and you say, you know what? I was so young, or whatever my background was, it's not so much that my life looked instantly, immediately different, but maybe it's that in the long haul, the trajectory of your life is completely different than what it would have been if you had never met Jesus. And you say, man, if I had not met Jesus, I know my heart, who knows what I could have got into, and He saved me from those things before I ever got into them. Thank God for that. So there's variation, but that's the story of a Christian. Before you met Jesus, meeting Jesus, after you met Jesus. Let's step back from that just for a second and think about ourselves and some of the people we know. We live in the great republic of Texas. We live in what is considered the south of the United States. We might be on the western edge out here close to New Mexico, but we live in what most people would still call the Bible Belt, West Texas. Churches on every corner, lots of people have heard about Jesus, know about Jesus. So you may assume that most of the people you meet who call themselves Christians have this story, this three-part story figured out. But there's a lot of people right here in Odessa, Texas who are confused about how this story plays out in the life of a Christian. And the confusion usually rests in somebody thinking or somebody forgetting about one part of this story, thinking they don't have that part or forgetting that they do have that part. So let me just explain to you what this looks like. I meet people on a regular basis who say to me, you know what, Pastor, I've always been a Christian. To which I say, no, you haven't. You weren't born a Christian. You didn't come out of the womb singing, oh, praise the name. You came out screaming and crying and you were angry with everyone. If they didn't change your diaper on time, you whined and cried and threw a fit. And when you were a toddler, you did toddler things. The Bible says that we're born sinners. 
and that we sin because we are born sinners. The Bible says we're born children of wrath, alienated from God, separated from God because of our connection with Adam. No one is born a Christian. You may not remember much life before you became a Christian, but none of us are born Christians. We're born sinners. Sometimes people forget that. Sometimes people take Jesus out of the middle here. And they try to replace Jesus with a vague, vanilla, bland, generic, run-of-the-mill idea of God. They say, oh, I had a before, but then I met God, I believed in God, I trusted in God, and now there's the after. But it doesn't work. The story doesn't work that way. We're not just theists who believe in a higher power, in a deity, in a God. We are Christians. And the book of Acts says there is only one name given among men by which we might be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless you come through me. So unless you have Jesus Christ at the center, then you don't have a Christian story. You understand there's a lot of people in the Bible Belt who think they have a Christian story and all they have in the middle is a vague idea of God not Jesus Christ. Or they have a Jesus Christ in the middle who's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. It's a Jesus Christ of some other religion, of man's invention. None of us are born Christians. You've got to meet Jesus. And then lastly, some people forget that there's an after part of our story. There's a lot of them in the Bible Belt. They say, oh yeah, yeah. I was born a bad person, sinner. But you know, at VBS or youth camp or a Billy Graham crusade or a church service on a Sunday or whatever, I put my faith in Jesus. I got saved. You say, great. Now tell me the rest of the story. And as they tell you the rest of the story, you realize their life didn't change a bit. You realize their life doesn't look any different than the lives of people who have never met Jesus. They're just sort of being pushed along by the flow of culture and society, and there is nothing different or distinct about them at all. Paul's given us a model here in this defense. He's saying to you, this is the story of every Christian. Before you met Jesus, meeting Jesus, and after you met Jesus. None of us are born Christians. We're born sinners. The only name that can save you is the name of Jesus Christ. And after Jesus saves you, He intends to continue writing your story so that you look more and more like Him over time. Now, as you think about that in your own life, we've looked at the big picture of Acts 26, these three pieces of Paul's story. I want you to see a few specifics. We don't have time to break down every verse in this passage, but just a few specifics about what it looks like when God in His grace writes this kind of story in our lives. Before Jesus, meeting Jesus, after Jesus. So let's talk about gospel hope from Paul's speech. The first thing I want you to see is this. Our salvation is rooted in the promises of God that were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This has to be the foundation. This must be the foundation. The promises of God 
fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If your Bible's open, look at Acts 26, 6. Paul said, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Where would a person find the promises that God made to Paul's ancestors? You'd find them in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. Paul says, that's why I'm on trial here. That's the bottom line reason. You want to know what's going on here? Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, let me just cut to the chase. The real issue is that I believe the Scriptures. And I don't just believe the Scriptures, but I believe they've been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Stay in chapter 26. I know your notes may say 6, but stay in chapter 26 and look at verse 22. This day, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, I have nothing to say to you except what the prophets said would come to pass. I don't have anything new. I don't think, have anything innovative. I don't have anything creative. All I have is the Old Testament, the prophets and Moses. The law and the prophets. That's it. And it's come to pass. Verse 23, that Christ suffered. And he was the first to rise from the dead. And he's going to proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's going back and he's basing it on the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 26, Paul says, look, I'm speaking boldly. None of this has escaped your notice. It wasn't done in a corner. and None of this is secret. Verse 27, King Agrippa. Here's the real issue, Agrippa. Let's get down to the basement level issue. Do you believe the prophets? Where would I listen to the prophets, Paul? In the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. Do you believe the Scriptures? The Scriptures that were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That has to be the foundation of your faith. Can I tell you something? In the year 2022, every day, every week, every month, you hear stories about Christians. They say their faith is deconstructing. In the old days, Christians called this apostasy or falling away. Now we call it deconstructing. What they mean is, I'm no longer a Christian. I used to believe in Jesus, but I no longer believe in Jesus. You hear stories about this all the time. These stories are celebrated in many places. Can I tell you something about these stories of deconstruction? These people did not build on the right foundation. People build on all sorts of wrong foundations. Sometimes people build on the foundation of a particular pastor or a particular church. And when something happens to that pastor, he moves, he dies, he makes a mistake and he has to step down, or when they have to move and they're separated from this church, everything just crumbles. The Word of God hasn't changed. They built their foundation where it should not have been built. Some people build their foundation on culture. Not easy to do this anymore, but in my growing up years, it was relatively easy to just sort of say, you know, most people are Christian in the Bible Belt, and most people think like I do. Most people have a basic morality that lines up with the Bible, what's right and what's wrong. We all kind of agree on that, and you've built on that foundation. But guess what? It's 2022, and that foundation is gone. It's gone. 
And if that was your foundation, your faith has gone with it. The Word of God hasn't changed. Scriptures haven't changed. Culture's changed. And if that was your foundation, you're in trouble. Some people build their foundation of their faith on politics, politicians, power. That's great when the Supreme Court goes your way. It's tough when it goes the other way. It's great when you have a good godly person in office. It's not so great when you don't. It's not a sure foundation for your faith. You know what an awful lot of people build their faith, their salvation experience on? Emotion, feeling, and experience. How they felt at a church camp. How they felt in a church service. Emotion. I got news for you. You know this. You're going to feel differently Tuesday than you feel today. Your emotions are going to change. They're going to be up and they're going to be down. And if that's the foundation for your faith and your salvation, it's an unstable foundation. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not build your house on the sand. Build it on the rock. How does one do that? You build it on the Word of God. And you live it. And you cling to it. And it is a rock underneath your feet. Politicians can come and go. Supreme courts can come and go. Culture can come and go. Parents can come and go. Pastors can come and go. The Word of God endures forever. It must be your foundation. And it's Paul's foundation. I don't have anything to say except what's been said in the prophets. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Yes or no? That's the issue. Yes or no? Paul said, I'm on trial today. Because I believe in what the prophets and Moses said, and I believe it was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's a sure foundation that you can build on. Secondly, our salvation is applied through the miracle of regeneration. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We talked about this doctrine when we looked at Lydia. We said that Paul showed up in Philippi, Paul preached, and God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. That's the miracle of regeneration. It's God giving us eyes to see. God giving us ears to hear. God opening our hearts. God reaching into the soul of a sinful person and taking out their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36. It's the Holy Spirit of God blowing like the wind upon a dead sinner and bringing them to life. John 3, Ephesians 2. It's the miracle of regeneration. It's a miracle that only God can do. Paul couldn't do it. I can't do it. Only God can do that miracle. It's referenced in verse 18. Paul is sent to open their eyes. What happens when a person has their eyes open? They turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Could Paul do that for somebody? We couldn't do it in this passage. Agrippa and Festus just sort of laugh him off. He couldn't do it in Athens. They laughed him right out of town. I can't do this for you. Paul couldn't do it for you if he was here. Only God can change a sinner's heart. Only God can open eyes, open ears, open hearts to the truth of the gospel. You know what that means? It means if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, 
you've experienced a miracle in your life. Somebody told you about Jesus Christ, and then God in His grace and His mercy performed heart surgery on you, a dead sinner, and He brought you to life. That's nothing short of a miracle, the work of God. Thirdly, our salvation results in forgiveness and sanctification. Notice the rest of verse 18. First, God will open their eyes. Secondly, here's what the sinful people will do once their eyes are open. They'll turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Forgiveness and sanctification. You need to remember both of those things if you're a Christian. Forgiveness is a bookkeeping term. It simply means your debt has been paid. It doesn't mean your debt has just been erased. It doesn't mean your debt has just been forgotten, like we just smudged it out of the books, we just hit delete and got rid of it. Not like we swept it under the rug, it's that your debt was paid. It was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ when He died on the cross. He paid your sin debt. And he paid it in full. The sin that you committed before you met Jesus, he paid for that. The sin that you continue to commit after you've met Jesus, he paid for that. He paid your sin debt so that you could be forgiven. And he has given you a place among those who are sanctified. Sanctification is a process that begins after your sin is forgiven. It's a process by which you become more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, more and more Christ-like. It doesn't happen in a moment. doesn't happen in an instant. doesn't happen in a night. You can't microwave it. But it's a process where God makes you more and more like His Son. You can't forget either of those realities if you're a Christian. You cannot forget that your debt is paid and you're forgiven. Because if you forget that, you'll start to think, I'm a Christian because I'm better than other people. Or you'll start to think, I'm a good Christian because I've been good this week. Or I'm a bad Christian because I've really messed up this week. And you're completely forgetting the fact that Jesus has forgiven your sin debt. A forgiven person has no debt with the holy God because Jesus has paid it. And He's paid it all. But you also better not forget that you've been given a place among those who are sanctified. Not only do you have a before and not only have you met Jesus, but God intends for you to have an after you meet Jesus. That third part of your story where you are growing in Christ's likeness. How does Paul say that it happens? A place among those who are sanctified by faith. You're not sanctified by your own good works. You're not sanctified by being really, really good. You're sanctified by continuing to trust in the finished work of God's Son, Jesus. Sanctified by faith. Lastly, our salvation gives us a story to share with the world. And I just want to circle back and talk about something we just touched on briefly at the, at the get-go. Back up at verse 2 where Paul begins to speak. Remember, it's been two years. Two years. Chains in prison for two years. What did he do wrong? Nothing. He believed in the prophets. He talked about Jesus. He had enemies. 
They lied about him, and he was thrown in prison, and he was left there for two years. Life was horrible for Paul when you pick up the story in Acts 26. Paul was not living his best life now. He was in a living hell. All he wanted to do was travel and tell people about Jesus, and he's stuck in chains. Life was not going the way he wanted it to go. And he gets hauled before Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. And there's probably part of him that says, well, here we go again. I've done this a lot over the last two years. What's the point? What's the point? But he stands up. He's not jaded. He's not cynical. He's not throwing a pity party. He's not angry. He's not bitter. Look at the first thing he says. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate. I consider myself fortunate. That is, before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. Fortunate. Paul did not end up talking to kings because he was a celebrity. He ended up talking to kings because people lied about him. And he rotted in prison for at least two years. Imprisonment is going to continue, and it's going to get Paul all the way to Rome. It's not what Paul wanted for his life. I can't help but think that Paul, with the chains on his wrists for two years, found himself thinking, I'm wasting my life in this prison. I could do so much if God would just get me out of here and change my circumstance. How could you not? How could human nature not question the circumstance that he found himself in? A prisoner for a month, six months, 18 months, two years. Not the way he wanted life to go. It was exactly the way God wanted Paul's life to go. And with complete confidence in the sovereignty of God, he stands up two years into the process and he says, you know what? I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to you today. I don't know how life is going for each one of you individually. For some of you, I know right now life is great. Things are going your way. Oil prices are good. Work's phenomenal. Or there's no work, even better. Retirement. You've got kids. You've got grandkids. You look around you say, everything's great right now. Health is good. Wonderful. Living my best life. And some of you say, I can't even remember what it's like to live my best life. I've been sick. I've faced challenges. I've faced money problems. I've faced job problems. I've had family problems. Problems. Problems this is not how I want my life to go. I feel like my life is being wasted. Regardless of what your experience is today, with all honesty, you can stand up and say, you know what, I'm fortunate to be right where I'm at. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can stand up regardless of circumstance and say, I am fortunate because there was a time in my life where I didn't know Jesus. I was lost. Then I met Jesus. And after I met Him, He's continued to work in my life in these ways. Not all the ways I would have hoped. 
but he's continued to work in my life. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, you can start writing the rest of that story today. You can allow God to start writing the rest of your story today. There is a time, maybe right now, that is before you met Jesus, and you can meet him today. You can know the truth about Jesus Christ. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be given a place among those who are sanctified by faith. And then God will begin writing the rest of your story. The after you met Jesus part. That's the story of every Christian. Before I met Jesus, meeting Jesus, and what Jesus has done in my life since then.